Welcome to another episode of the Digital Payments Challenges and Solutions Podcast. Once again, I'm your guest host, David Lilly, and on today's episode, we're focused on the subject of card industry compliance. The subject of PCI DSS compliance is a complex one, and for many businesses, it may be regarded as a dry subject. However, despite its dryness, please make no mistake. If you're a merchant and you're taking card payments through your website or over the telephone, this is a subject that you need to truly understand to protect your customers and your businesses. As you'll hear in this episode, massive financial penalties can be imposed on certain companies who leave themselves vulnerable to what's known as a card data breach. So, in an attempt to help demystify some of the key aspects of PCI DSS compliance, I chose to speak to John Greenwood. John is a trusted professional who advises a variety of different call centers on their card payment strategy, how they can meet the needs and demands of their customers whilst being compliant with PCI DSS. Naturally, my first question for John was to establish a little bit about his career background. My background's in contact center outsourcing. Um, before I got into it, I uh, started a small business in the 80s and um, we built that up quite quickly, making chocolate and jelly molds in kiddies' character shapes that we sold to um, a couple of big supermarket chains. So understood business and the need for it and got into call centers, just right place, right time. It was telemarketing industry then. So massive exposure to organizations trying to move from a branch and maybe direct mail type of structure yeah. to something remote but more accessible, the telephone. And we did some great stuff as big organizations came to Europe, people like Microsoft and Cisco. We were their call centers, just right place, right time. When people were building direct-to-consumer banking propositions, right place, right time. So I got involved in some big transition projects last century in the 90s that just give me a great insight on how tech works and how businesses need to engage with their customers to grow, right? So got into the payments bit, again, by pure chance, right? Um, always had to deal with payments and regulatory compliance in my sort of contact center outsourcing. But the um, the specifics around PCI data security standards within the payments industry, particularly the card part of it, got into that 10 years ago when I was helping a pal almost not get away from, but reduce the cost of compliance. So been into it for the last 10 years and, and find it fascinating, absolutely fascinating. One of the objectives, John, of the Digital Payments Challenges and Solutions podcast is to try and demystify the subject of payments. And in this industry, probably more than any other, it's renowned for these three-letter acronyms. There's a lot of confusion in terms of what some of these mean. Today, obviously, it's all about PCI compliance, but here we're not just using the term PCI compliance, we've got PCI DSS. So help us unravel what that acronym means, please. So it's the payment card industry, PCI, data security standard. Yeah. And it's it's something that's been around for about 13 years now, right? And it all came about through the Enron investigations which is all about corporate governance in america yeah and of course the card brands when you look at them mastercard visa american express discovery and of course there's a japanese one jcb yeah but they're pretty much dominated by americans in america mm. so in a nutshell the pci dss is all about the payment card industry data security and what, what Enron sort of forced was greater corporate governance in the US for US companies about how they managed their risk. So the PCI DSS came about, if you like, by consolidating all the terms and conditions 
within each of the card brands yeah. around data security and how data was kept secure. So before the PCI DSS, if you like, if you were an organization, you'd have a set of conditions for your Amex card, a set of conditions for your JCB. Pain in the neck, right? Too hard, right? So the idea was to consolidate all of those terms and conditions around one single data security standard. So the PCI DSS only applies to payment cards. It applies globally, right? And it's a contractual obligation between, first of all, the card brands, then the card brands with the acquiring banks, mm. and then the acquiring banks have to pass down that obligation to keep the card brands' data secure. They have to pass that down to the merchant through the contract that they have when a merchant signs up for a merchant account. So that's sort of how it flows through. And generally, that's what it, how it, how it is or what it is and how it came about. So if I can play that back, John, essentially what you're saying in a simplified way is that before PCI DSS compliance came in, the likes of Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and JCB had their own card security rules yeah. Probably very complex for a merchant to understand different sets of rules. So PCI DSS was the coming together of those organizations we've mentioned and the creating of something which was much easier to understand. Is that a fair Yeah, sum? that was the aim. That was the aim. And um, it was a good first step putting it together just to try and make it easy for uh, the merchant, the banks um, to understand and of course, then you had to have a layer that said, okay, well, if we've got this data security standard, a bit like ISO, right, or any other type of standard, how do we know that people are complying to it? So what we'll do, we'll have to, we'll have to get some people to sign up to, um, if you like, certify organizations against this standard. Mm. And that's where you got security organizations then sending off their engineers, their auditors to be validated to certify this new standard. So that that those organizations um, and the individuals within the organizations are called qualified security assessors, QSAs. Mm. And um like like most assessors, you know, it's a broad church, mm. and um, but the great thing is that the the every QSA will respect the view of another QSA. So getting two of them, or three of them in the room to agree to one thing can often be a bit of a challenge. But everybody wants to to um, do the right thing to keep the data secure. It's all it's security first is the key thing. Do you know what this kind of brings to mind, John, is, and you'll be familiar with when the Data Protection Act, DPA, as it was known in the UK, changed to GDPR, General Data yeah. Protection Regulation. And that was literally around making sure companies in Europe were operating to the same rule book. And as right. you know, GDPR here in the UK is governed by the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office. But the one thing that GDPR doesn't have that PCI DSS have is Whilst you can go and speak to someone who, let's say, has qualified themselves in GDPR, organizations almost have to self-police. They have to read something, understand yeah. it, and apply it yeah. to their business. And what I find in that particular sector is that, you know, there's a lot of breach of GDPR going on, and there is far too few people around to actually go out and help businesses. But what you're saying mm -hmm. with PCI DSS compliance, there are people that you can pull in that are qualified to help you with this subject. Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, one of the biggest differences between the GDPR, or as we've got it over here, DPA, yeah. 2018, the biggest difference is that the even though the size of the documents might be similar, right? what the PCI DSS does is spend a lot of time telling you what to test, not just what to do, but what to test, Yep. right and what evidence you need yeah so it, it's the documents evolved and it has um a process of evolution that engages the 
you like, the community yeah. um, to make sure the standard is playing catch up with the criminals. Yeah. So one of the things we should add is, is and, and, and perhaps just move on to, is who controls the standard. Yes. Right. Who governs whilst, it, essentially, yeah. You, you've got it. Yeah, who governs it. So whilst it was in the terms and conditions of the card brands, then it was up to each card brand to manage their terms and conditions. But as soon as you put it out there and consolidate around one standard, it needs a separate body to manage, maintain, and develop that standard. Now, that body is the payment card industry, PCI, Security Standards Council, right? Now then, I mentioned standards rather than standard, right? Plural. Because there are about 14 different standards that are applied across the whole of the card payments ecosystem yeah. that covers everything from, well, that isn't a card brand, right? You want to apply the rules to yourself. But downstream of that, it applies to card issuers, giving the, us as consumers the cards, right? Because you don't want one card to the consumer, one to my criminal mate, right? doesn't work like that. It's got to be to a standard. So card production, card issuing, right? Right through to point of sale devices and the security standards around point of sale devices, mm. the security standards around websites, e-commerce, yeah. mobile devices, right? So the PCI SSC, Security Standards Council, is responsible for developing maintaining those standards rather than compliance to it yeah and john the next question i'm going to ask you this is probably one of those where I'm, i may ask you to sort of really gloss over quickly and what we yeah. can do in the show notes if people want to actually sure. get more specific they can look in the show notes and, and we can guide them to different places but what does a company need to do in simple terms high level to be pci, PCI compliant. compliant yeah okay so what they've got to do is basically contact their acquiring bank, right? Yeah. Because it's a contractual obligation with their acquiring bank. And that typically involves completing a form. Yeah. yeah. And the type of form depends on, depends entirely on how much cardholder data you actually store, process, or transmit within your environment, within your organization. And and the clever approach is to outsource everything, yeah, to more secure organizations, reduce your compliance overhead. So it's you have to go to the answer is go to your bank. Okay. And the benefits of being PCI compliant for businesses, we're gonna this is a two double-edged question. I'm gonna yeah. talk about yeah. the benefits and then I'm gonna talk about the consequence of breach. So first of all, what would you summarize the benefits to be? Well, it's 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 interesting because card data is personal data. Yeah, personal data, and you hit the nail on the head earlier. ICO Data Protection Act, General Data Protection Regulation (GDPR). So the benefit of not having cardholder data in your environment, or making sure it's secure to the applicable requirements and controls within the standard means that you reduce your data footprint or secure that data footprint in line with your legal obligations to keep personal data secure. So We've seen really over the years, John, haven't we? We've seen some horrendous news stories Ooh. about card data that's been gathered by major companies and there's been a breach and essentially they're saying, oh, look, there's a chance that your card data could be available for sale on, on the dark web. Can you recall any examples of that? We had to, we were actually part of the um, British Airways data breach. We'd booked a flight. So we were hearing that for, or seeing the texts firsthand yeah, in that communication. Now, I thought the communication was very good, mm. right? As a customer of uh, British Airways, great communication, managing expectations of the customer, all the things that we learn in you know, managing different communication strategies with customers. I yeah. thought they ticked the box. What they hadn't really done 
was secured their environment against criminals, right? And, you know, there was a forensic investigation, a report issued, and, you know, the organizations learned from that. But the, the um, I think the, the downside of, of not being compliant is that cardholder data is much more easily monetized by criminals than a name and address. It's much more attractive to criminals than name and address. Yeah. Therefore, having it in your organization simply makes you a target for criminals. And, and as economic times uh, put pressure on household incomes, then there's a fringe of people who are more vulnerable than others to be persuaded by the criminals to actually cross that line. And we see so much of uh, data breach being influenced by disaffected employees and organisations must find that terribly difficult to manage. So I was going to ask you next, John, in terms of the consequences of a failure to comply with PCI mm. and, and how frequently, frequently does this happen. So just for clarity for the listener, is it yeah. illegal to not comply with PCI DSS complaints? Is it illegal in the same way that there are certain activities that people could carry out with data protection that are illegal and heavy fines? Is it illegal? It's not illegal. Okay. It's a contract of the PCI compliance to the payment card industry data security standard is a contractual obligation. Mm. Now, what we see is guidance on the ICO website to say that should you um, require to be compliant to the PCI DSS, then the ICO would recommend that you meet those minimum international data security standards for supporting payment cards or payment card payments. Yeah? Yes. It doesn't say that it's a legal requirement, but it does guide you to meeting that standard. And of course, you know, when does the pain happen? You know, when does the brown stuff hit the whirly thing? Well, like the GDPR and Data Protection Act, that all happens in the event of a data compromise. Yeah. So in the event of a data compromise, the card brands pick up that some of their card data has been stolen, right? Because they see the activity, Yeah. right? They then pass a penalty down to the bank. The bank then choose whether or not to pass that penalty to their merchant. So the merchant might have outsourced that card, the management of that cardholder data, the the impact of the security of that cardholder data to a third party. Yeah. In which case, the merchant has to make sure that their contract with that third party actually covers then the cost of the penalty passed down from the bank. And I guess, John, in the worst case scenarios, a merchant that was, let's say, repeatedly guilty of, let's say, a breach of PCI DSS, the worst case scenario is they could be prevented from taking car payments. Is that fair? Is that, have you seen that? That, that is the worst case. That is the worst case. And there was um, a high street retailer, electronics goods retailer, with a very well-publicized data breach or multiple data breaches a few years ago. Yeah. Right. And they had um, a, a notification from the card brands to the bank to give them 90 days notice to withdraw card facilities should they not within that 90 days provide evidence of a of a pathway to compliance yeah mm. they, to cut if we cut through all that detail and try to look at things really really simply yeah right and keep in mind the data protection act and gdpr yeah those two regulatory requirements legal requirements right basically protect our data as data subjects as consumers yeah. and and europe pushed out the GDPR to support our human rights to privacy. Well, it's not unreasonable. If you're providing a complete global infrastructure to allow for people to pay for things, right, without using cash, because you can't put cash in the internet, right? Mm. Right? Nobody's shown me how to do it yet. So if you're providing all that infrastructure, it's quite reasonable for you to say, oh, whilst you're taking all the benefits of using my cards through my ecosystem, to grow your businesses with your customers, to keep your customers happy, please could you keep my data secure? Not unreasonable at all. 
So the easiest way to think of the PCI DSS is just the Data Protection Act or the GDPR for the card brand's data. Yeah. Dead simple. It doesn't feel too long ago for me, John. I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you. It doesn't feel too long ago since I was doing, let's call it a mail order transaction. I'm the customer. I've got someone else on the end of the phone and they're asking me for my entire card detail. They've got my home address, yeah. um, security codes, et cetera. It doesn't feel that long ago, does it, that that type of thing was happening? You're you're an expert in this space. How often do you do you come across organizations that are still capturing the full card information and holding it somewhere? Yeah, all the time, mm. all the time. And what's interesting is the the um, that most fraud happens on the internet. Yeah. Why? Well, because we've secured the face to face payments channel with chip and pin. It's now rolled out in America. And what we've seen, what the card brands have seen, is fraud moved to the internet, mm. right? Now with the internet, we've got regulations from Europe over the last two years, the Payment Service Directive, the second one, PSD2, that has within it something called strong uh, customer auth authorization, yeah? yeah? And, and the card brands have got their own form of it through 3D Secure. Yeah. Right, that used to be quite clunky, but now smartened up a bit. Right now, then that'll mean that the internet will become more secure through this two factor authentication, which means more fraud is going to go to the contact center. Right now, then do we still see it where I'm phoning up and people ask my card? Yeah, happened yesterday ordering some oil. Right, happened the day before. Right, just phoning up phoning a shop, couldn't get through on the internet, that there wasn't going through, phoned them up, made the order. Now then, we shouldn't confuse listening to spoken card data with non-compliance because the PCI DSS can be applied to all the environment all of the time, which means, because remember we, we touched on earlier, store, process, or transmit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that I got heavily involved in and guided was the guidance on the applicability of the PCI DSS to call centers and the supply chain to the telephone environment. And the big change we made there was to, to put the emphasis on the transmission of spoken cardholder data, that that is cardholder data. Mm -hmm. And the reason the guidance was published back in 2018 was simply because Call centers aren't made up of copper wires and tin boxes behind locked closed doors anymore. Just like the high street and the back street, it's in the cloud. Mm. So spoken card holder data becomes vulnerable. Right. So the emphasis used to be about securing the recording, but that was in a time of, you know, copper copper cables and tin boxes. Now it's all about securing the cloud. So it's about securing the supply chain. So you could apply all the standard to all your environment all the time, or you could prevent spoken cardholder data entering your environment and therefore triggering the application of the standard to that environment to keep it secure. So it's about, just like the Data Protection Act, just like GDPR, minimizing your data footprint minimizing your scope, reducing the time, cost, and effort to keep the card data secure. And that very much brings into play, John, the various different systems that are out there, solutions that are out there on the market. So thinking yeah. about that, think about a call center environment that you might be mm. brought in to consult on. What types of solutions are there out there that you can recommend an organization looks at to help them with PCI DSS compliance? So good question about the different technology types. And the technology type that you want to deploy to reduce your scope, i.e. how much of your infrastructure the PCI DSS applies to, is going to be different for all organizations. And we covered that in the recent guidance, 2018 guidance. Yeah. Basically, we said, okay, well, technology comes in two types. The type that's automated, so buying a cinema ticket, for example, where you self-serve, right? Mm. So we call that unattended, yeah? Typically, 
phoning up, the machine answers, you buy your cinema ticket, your car parking ticket, etc. And we then said, okay, well, what about when it's attended, when you're talking to somebody and you continue that voice contact for the entire um, length of the transaction? So that's attended and unattended. Yeah. Then we said, okay, well, you can use telephony technologies or you could use digital technologies. And with telephony technologies, what you're looking to do is somehow prevent the customer speaking the card data, but then use their telephone handset to use the digital signals to actually then represent the card data. Yeah, just as you would do with the internet on your keyboard, putting in the card data. So, so you didn't put the card data. Those are dual tone multi-frequency, DTMF it's referred to, more little acronyms. But you use the tones within your within your handset to actually input a representation of the card data directly into the bank. Yeah? Yeah. That was one sort. That's the telephony sort. Can I ask you, just ask you on that one, John, yeah, yeah, before yeah. we go on to the next one? Are those tones DTMF? If you were to basically type in something on your phone now and I was to be able to record yeah. that, my understanding is there is software that could then I could then put that through that would tell me what that number is. Am I right in thinking that that exists? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So DTMF has a vulnerability to it, does it? Massive vulnerability. And more than that, more than the fact that it, it it's card data, just that card data, those tones, unflattened and altered tones, passing through your telephony switch, yeah, which is part of your infrastructure, or your telephony suppliers, if they're providing you with services like call recording or call direction, ACD type functionality, or even even more, you know, if it's contact center as a service, if those tones are being passed and altered through that infrastructure, all your suppliers' infrastructure is in scope of the PCI DSS, as well as your own. And damn right, I've, I've known people who can, you could, they can listen to the tones and write the number down. You know, to the trained deer, you know, human beings are fantastic computers, aren't they? So, <laughs> and know. in your experience in call centers, John, how prominent and how much use do you still see of DTMF type technology? Well, I think it's growing. You know, the the um, the technology was invented over here in the UK you know, 12, 12, 15 years ago now, and funnily enough, the the organisation that has the patent for it weren't necessarily the inventors of it. They just patented it. This and, may seem like a stupid question, John. How is yeah. how is DTMF compliant with PCI DSS, given what we're saying about the ability to be able to interpret interpret what those codes are uh, and convert them into letters? Well, what the technology does is actually flatten those tones. Right. It alters those tones. So so it absolutely secures the card data as it as it's transmitted across the um, infrastructure, the telephone network or the contact centre infrastructure on its journey to the payment gateway, yeah? Or, yeah, or where the payment actually gets turned into cash for somebody and is deposited in somebody's accounts. But when you're using that telephony-based technology, the technology itself is reliant on intercepting in some way the voice call. Yeah. So you have to plug the technology in, in simple terms, before those unflattened DTMF tones actually enter a service environment. Now, then, one thing that the um, PCI Council has never been able to do, right, the card brands have never been able to do, is to make sure that the world telephony providers actually comply with the standard. Yeah. Too hard, right? Just simply too hard. And they're much bigger or, you know, size of organizations or they used to be. So the PCI DSS has never applied to the carriers, the transportation of the call between the caller and the entity. It's only when you add services like call recording or call direction, CCAS type applications that then that turns it into a service and then the the PCI DSS allow, uh, applies to that service. Mm. So we've got a 
we've got attended and attended, we've got telephony, and then we've got digital. Now then, the great advantage of digital is that it requires no dependency on integration, on connecting to the call path, the telephony call. And, and that makes it a lot simpler to deploy in terms of time, cost, and effort. And for some organizations, you know, who are themselves looking at a transforming to a digital, digital transformation is the general term, isn't it? For those organizations, it, it might be a, a lot simpler approach. It would be remiss of me, John, not to mention Gala Technology, who obviously sponsored this podcast, and their SotPay product, which, mm. of course, is used in a call center environment and can be used in hotel call center environment. Yeah. What is your knowledge of that product and what are your, what are your observations of it compared to the other solutions that are on the market? Well, I think it's a little bit like the um, originators of the telephony-based, DTMF-based technologies. Mm. They were first in and took a um, an early market advantage because it was developed to solve a very real business problem. Mm. And it was developed not by, if you like, a technology company. It was developed by a merchant looking to solve their own fraud problem. Yeah. You know, PCI wasn't part of that brief initially. It was, how do I stop myself being ripped off by criminals, right? How do I stop myself getting so angry that these criminals are ripping me off, right? So it was a fraud-related um, origin, which is a great story. Um, I think I think the, the key point is that organizations are there, firms are there to make money, you know, for their stakeholders. Yeah. Um, charities, public sector are there to provide services to the public, right? And, and the criminal, fraud is the enemy of everybody. And, you know, that's a problem that's growing, right? And, and we've got to do as much as we can as um, business people, as public servants, to try and minimise fraud and minimise the risk of fraud. Yeah. The Data Protection Act helps us with that. And then there are technologies you can deploy to reduce your footprint that help you with that. But you've just got to fit the one that, that best suits your needs. Now then, what we should focus on is what those needs are and what the fit is. And my experience is that the fit is all about balancing the customer experience that you can afford or you want with the risk the downside of getting it wrong. So you've got customer experience, risk, and then bottom line cost. And it's getting the balance right between those three. Yeah. And the other, once you've got your head around what that balance is, the thing that you've got to then line up this decision with is, okay, what does my customer engagement plan look like? How am I going to engage with my customers? It's voice a big part of it. Or am I on a digital transformation journey? You know, is my organization that I'm part of got its own digital transformation plans? Are we moving away from voice for our younger customers? Yeah. Are we just providing voice for a certain segment of our customer base or for a certain part of the customer journey? Yeah. And if it's digital, right, then where does automation, you know, IVR, you know, this interactive voice response a way of automating voice calls, of reducing the cost of handling voice calls. Very last century now, right? You know, and... Um, Very frustrating for the customer, I have to say, as well, John. Oh, it's, 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 it was an innovation at the time, but overused, right? And we've all suffered those long Indeed. queues and difficult choices. But, you know, we've now got the same frustration with bots. Hmm. We've got the same frustration as businesses trying to reduce their costs get the customer service right. But they're struggling sometimes with bots, just as they've been struggling with IVR to get the balance right between customer service and cost. But back to our payment story, you know, the technology you deploy to get the balance right has got to align with your digital transformation journey as much as your, your uh, deliverables around customer experience. 
John, I like the integrity in your answer because essentially what you're saying there is every organization is different. What organizations are selling, how they're selling it, what they want the customer experience to be. And let's face it, what that business can afford in terms of systems and how that system might integrate with their own customer relation management CRM system. So playing that back, I guess what you might be saying is if you're um, a call center and you're literally dealing with everyone over the phone and you are soliciting a payment over the phone, then a solution like SotPay might be completely valid for for your organization. But if you are an organization that literally is doing everything on the web, i.e. the customer is putting their own card details in, then another solution might be more appropriate for that. So, Yeah, and it, it depends on your profile of customer. But I'm doing um, helping 18 UK councils at the moment go through their PCI DSS compliance certification, yeah. right? And they each of those have their own customer service center. Not all big, typically between 15 and 30, 40 people. Some are bigger, right? Some are outsourced, right? For the bigger ones, yeah. right? Now, the calls they get through are typically from older people who can't engage with the internet, who find it difficult to use technology because of rheumatism, because, because, right? We can all imagine that older customer, right? I'm picturing my 82-year-old father who has a mobile phone but not a smartphone and my 86-year-old mum who still insists on paying bills on demand. So, you know, you can't check. People need to feel secure. They've made the payment and it's gone through, right? We all need that reassurance. Tick job done. We've sorted that. We've paid it. It's off my mind. I'm not worrying about it anymore. Well, asking a person to input those card details via a telephone handset, whether it's via a link or down the phone, it's not going to happen. So the PCI DSS allows for this. It allows for unintentional cardholder data. It allows for exceptions. It allows for exceptions for old people, blind people, people with rheumatism. For councils particularly, They've got an obligation to be accessible to 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 us to, to the citizens to every type of customer with every absolutely. need. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's a there's a degree of, um, of well, if you're not digitally connected, an Ofcom tell us that about fourteen percent of the UK population are not digitally connected and perhaps never will be digitally connected. Right. So surely those are the exceptions now. They're not going to manage the tech, whether it's via a telephone or via a, a handset. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's your dad. But but for the younger people, they, you know, if my kids, if I call my kids now in their late twenties, right? 30, daughters 30, I think, next year, right? If I call them, they're bloody hell, Dad, what's up? What's the emergency? Everything's digital, everything's just at the fixed it. Everything's fast, everything's in the moment for the moment. Yeah. Right. And We've got to align, like, you know, any sales organization will want to align their messages with the customer's channel of choice. And what I've seen over the last 30 years, even when I was around doing the customer service for MSN in the mid-90s, when Bill Gates thought that the MSN was the internet, that was digital. It wasn't voice. Mm. Right. So younger people, digital, every organization's got to get that balance right customer experience, risk, and cost. What I do know, having been involved in nearly 60 programs, you know, change programs where people have looked at scope and looked to deploy technology to reduce PCI DSS scope, the overriding factor is what's our customer customer journey? What's our digital transformation program look like, right? The leadership are telling us digital first, you know, why shouldn't we be considering digital first and then seeing what the residue is and how we manage it? And how much risk does that represent? Are those vulnerable customers, right? Are they the exception? Yeah. Equally, you might be in an upsell, cross-sell scenario where actually getting the customer on the phone, debt collection might be another one, where if you're spending a lot of money, high cost to get people on the phone, high upsell, cross-sell, you might not want to get them off the phone. Mm. You might just want, in those circumstances, you know, it might be worth the additional investment 
to use a telephone-based technology in those cases, because you might realize that actually my model doesn't work as well. My upsell revenue model doesn't work as well. But like all marketing, test, 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 right? I think what you're articulating and you're doing it very well, John, is the importance of an organization understanding their customers, having customer insights so that they can create a digital payment strategy that services their customers' needs and their business exactly. needs. And so many organizations don't invest too heavily on having that customer insight and understanding what, what goes on behind the customer. I can see the real value well, in in what you're saying. And I can yeah. therefore see why someone like you is heavily used by organizations to help them figure out what their payment strategy should be. I mean, one of the terms that you hear a lot now, John, in payment is this omni-channel. And hmm. really, omni-channel means to think about every type of customer and the multiple different ways that they would want to pay. Yeah. Yeah. I think gone are the days where it's just all voice. Yeah. Right. But we're not into an entirely single digital channel yet. We're mixed. You know, we've got a broad community and generally businesses have a broad range of customers. Some like WhatsApp, some would like Facebook. The list goes on, right? But surely, 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 if we want to grow our businesses or we want to make it easy for our citizens to make payments, right, we've got to put ourselves in a position where we can take more payments for more customers more often, more easily, and do all of that at less cost. That, that's the object. Super simple, super straightforward, not crazily complex in any way right? Just more payments from more customers, more often, more easily, and at less cost. That's the mantra. John, where do you sit on the prowess that the collective payment industry has in the discipline of customer education? So we're we're seeing all these different ways that we can pay now, and we're going to come on to one of those in a second, this emergence of pay by linking open banking. Often the end customer doesn't really know what to trust So they find themselves on a website and they see this new payment option, this new link that might be called XYZ that they've never used before, or they're on something that looks like PayPal and it turns out there's been a a sheen put over a website and it's not really PayPal, but they're looking to, to, to defraud you. How well do you think the payment industry collectively works at educating customers? Yeah, Is is there anywhere that a, a customer can go to figure out what, what is genuine or what is not? Because if there is anything, I'm not aware of it. We live in a free enterprise economy, right? And a free enterprise economy means, you know, innovation. It means pushing things forward. It means marketing. And it's so easy for um, criminals to replicate things today. You know, their uh, grasp of technology is 100% Mm. is in advance of ours. right in terms of you know they don't take holidays and things like the pci dss that we're talking about earlier nobody says oh face to face you've got chip and pin now i'm stuffed mate right i'm going to hang up my bag fair cop they'll go and look at the internet with the internet with chip and pin or or strong customer authentication and and that they're not going to say oh fair cop mate they're going to go and look to the vulnerable channels yeah and the consumer, you know, my mother-in-law, constantly, constantly looking for little things that she buys off the internet that are going to make her feel better. Fair go. Fair do. You can't, can't argue with her wanting to feel better. But if you're buying pills in America, right, that don't exist right, and cost you 90 quid, yeah. they might make you feel better that they're coming in the post, but they never land. Equally, once I've got this data, of this vulnerable um, lady who who is happy to spend ninety pounds making herself feel better, I've sold that data down the line. Yeah, right. And and we're massively vulnerable in this data driven economy. API, you know, we're all connected all the time. Massively vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. but look, we're not. Thank God, in a way, we're not the other way, where all our access to knowledge to free enterprise is limited. So it's just part of the deal that, that you know, 
criminality happens, which is why the standard's most important. No, there isn't a single place to go. You know, go to the, you know, some great TV personalities, radio personalities, radio programs that offer great advice. Yeah. No Radio 4 jumps to mind. I mean, yeah. not, not all of us are going to go to Radio 4, right? But it's hard because we live in a free economy. You know. Yeah, and I guess what you're saying, John, is a motivated criminal is always going to be a step ahead. And when we close one door through technology, through yeah. compliance, another vulnerability is found in, in another way. And yeah. that's probably and always going to be the way, isn't it? It's always the way. And a great example, Come, I'm going to bring it back to the PCI yeah. Security Standards Council again. The community that, that um, they represent, this, this payments ecosystem, of course, they don't want to be the victim of fraud, the victim of criminals. Right. So the standard evolves and we've we back in March this year and of March that, that's just gone, um, a new version of the PCI DSS was launched to make it more difficult for criminals. Right. So we've got two versions of the standard, but we've got a couple of years to upgrade our levels of security, you know, and that that plays heavily to securing e-commerce. And it draws our attention to managing the supply chain, yeah. right? But it's playing catch-up. As you said, David, we're just playing catch-up all the time because the criminals, you know, they might have a Christmas break, but not very long, right? Because we're all spending a lot of money at Christmas and then the doors are open for them. John, I want to, if I may, sir, bring the conversation around a little bit to open banking and the various different pay-by-link options that we're seeing. In fact, our last podcast with Stephen Jones of Gola Technology, which was all about open banking and, and mm -hmm. pay by link. How do you see the emergence of this new way of paying uh, affecting the, the 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 card fraud marketplace? Well, there's a couple of interesting things about open banking. First of all, you know some of the big investors in it are the card brands, you know Mastercard and Visa, so they clearly see it as a growth area. That's a great sign. The other thing too is that, you know, when you look at the um, PSD2, Payment Services Directive 2, that was all about promoting a digital economy across Europe, you know, and that includes this island too, right? So the regulation is pointing towards an open payment system that isn't managed by a few big American companies, i.e. the card brands. So open banking and that regulation is a global initiative to promote electronic commerce. In other words, business. Yeah. Right. And I think to access a customer, to enable them to pay for something directly with the bank account, provides the customer with choice. What I'm seeing is we've not got our the banking, the payments community haven't got their ducks in a row yet to allow it to really get to the next stage. And that is all about who's going to pick up the bill for the fraud. Yeah. Now, then the big thing that the card brands have got in their favor is that as consumers, we're always protected against fraud. The retailer is exposed, right? If they don't use 3D Secure, which is the card brand's own way of validating the identity of the customer, right, the cardholder, Right. And in open banking and when we're paying for things with our bank accounts, we always get those notices from our bank up to you, mate. Right. You you're taking the risk with this. Have you checked? Have you checked? Have you checked? Now, then the banks haven't decided between themselves yet who's going to pick up the bill for the fraud. Is it the the you know, if I'm paying for something, is it going to be my bank? Right. Or is it the receiving bank? who are banking a criminal, for heaven's sake. They've <laughs> given a criminal a bank account. So, so the banks have got to sort that out. Because yeah. in my, to my way of thinking, the bank that is banking or providing banking facilities for the criminal, they're making a profit out of the criminal by charging them for the bank account. So they take, they take the flag. They should take the risk of dealing with the fraud that their customers impose on other other free people you know and they've got to sort that bit out so i think 
the fraud bit is is um, maybe holding back open banking a little bit, but there are massive advantages um, to using the banking app as a consumer, but also as a business, particularly in the call center. What's fascinating, John, is that I attended a, a business dinner in Sheffield just the other night, and this business dinner is typically attended by a lot of the most successful businessmen in South Yorkshire. And there was an opportunity. It's, it's it's a roundtable discussion where you can throw subjects in and, and on any subject. Yeah. And I was curious to know how many of them, and these are these are sizable businesses that are around this table, how many of them actually understood open banking, particularly the payment aspect of it. Yeah. And not one of them had any great knowledge of it, which was interesting, which flies somewhat in the face of the statistics that we heard quoted by Stephen Jones, where there are several million people now using open banking and i think in august there were several million transactions yeah about but, six seven million something yeah like that. so th yeah. Th clearly there is utilization it'd be interesting to delve deeper into the demographic profile and the the types of transactions that those are hmm. but certainly in my experience there's a, there's a way to go in terms of people understanding it and one of the secondary questions i asked john of the of these esteemed business people was how many of you like to be rewarded for the payment mechanism that you use. There are lots of Amex card members around the table and they were all, yeah, why would I switch to paying for something using open banking if I wasn't going to be rewarded in the same way that I am with my Amex card or my cashback card? So I think there's a big play still to be had, isn't there? There's a lot of open yeah. open water still in terms of clarification on the way that open banking is going to go. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I look at it purely as how can it benefit contact centre operation? So that's yeah. sort of where I'm coming at when I sort of sit at work, if you like, yeah. and rather than being a consumer. And, and where I see a big benefit for open banking and use of the banking app, right? And, and there's only one bank in the UK doesn't have a banking app, which is a co-op bank, right? Everybody else, all the other major banks got a banking app. So if you've got one of those on your phone, right, and you trust it and you use it, then one of the big advantages of it is validating your identity. They go through a big, you know, process. Know your customer. It's a financial regulation thing. KYC, yeah. right? Yeah. KYC. So you can validate the your identity by logging onto your banking app. Now, in a call center, particularly in certain sectors, certain business sectors, utilities, or what we used to call utilities, telecoms, etc. Yeah. They they use direct debits a lot, but a direct debit takes quite a while to fill in over the phone. Right, much easier to send out a link that communicates with the banking app. The customer interacts with the banking app, fills in the direct debit. Customers are winner, less time and effort on the phone. The business is a winner, less time and effort on the phone. Right, and it's secure, no mistakes. Right, because the data has just been transferred. We're not inputting it, and correct. So there are massive benefits, I think, immediate benefits to using uh, open banking to facilitate current processes mm. and we can reduce costs. Yeah. And I understand and, as well, John, that with the open banking rails, let's call them, there is now an increasing ability to create a recurring set payment as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Variable payments and um, recurring variable payments, aren't they? And yeah. um the the there are benefits in it and i think you know certain i think it is based on segments customer segments right i think it probably is i don't i haven't seen any data on it but i suspect it probably is younger uh yeah. younger professionals sort of young professionals um I don't know what young is these days. It's probably under 40, is it? <laughs> I would but, say under 40 is fair, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Something like that. So so I think it, I think it's got a um, a growing place. But, you know, we're going to see more of it for sure. We're not going to see less of it. And the banking industry will sort itself out as soon as they've realized they can make money out of it, mm. right? And at the moment with cards, they make a lot of money. And going back, circling back to our standards, security standards, right? If you're not meeting the security standards, you're likely to be paying more per transaction, particularly if you're in a certain business sector where there's a lot of fraud. Because the banks, they do one thing super well, 
right, is make money. Yeah. Right. And they make money from customers who don't always read the small print from businesses who might not realize the existence of the PCI DSS because it's in the terms and conditions of their bank and it's probably in the small print. And, you know, for the banks, you know, who have a lot of merchants, you know, they 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 have quite small teams, disproportionately small teams, to manage what was originally the franchise agreement with the card brands, right? But they they do for those individuals in those teams, they make big efforts to try and educate their merchants to make it easy to comply. You know, there are a lot of positive messages from the banks. But business isn't always open to listening to them because they're trying to get on with the basics, the everyday problems of looking after customers, of selling services, selling products. And, and you know, that's what they're in business for. PCI DSS is just a pain in the neck. And the more you can get away from it by not having card data to look after, the easier your life will be. John, it's been a delight talking to you. I have to say, I can sense when I'm, speaking to a true expert and the substance in your answers and how quickly you you're able to recall information it's been really excellent and what i'd like to close on is a little bit more about you and how you might be able to help certain businesses out there and in preparation for this podcast you very kindly sent me a paper that you've written which i promised to keep to myself and I've given it a quick read. and It's called The Present and Future Payment Landscape Considerations When Considering a Contact yeah. Center Payments Compliance Strategy. I can sense by the way that you talk and by the way that you write, you really know your stuff. So for anybody listening that's r- running a call center potentially, how would someone like you be able to help them? Give us an overview of what, what you'd be able to do to help. Well, the first thing is it's helping people understand how high is high and what the possibilities are. Right. Because what I find talking to call center people is they just want to do a great job. They just want to do they use the, the technology they've got to the best of the technology's ability as much as their ability. Yeah. So they're always looking to optimize every opportunity they've got. What they don't often realize is what's available uh, in terms of enabling them to take payments however a customer wants to pay. They've opened up their call centers to more channels. You might say omni-channel. So all I'm trying to do, maybe it's as little as a half-hour chat just to help them understand the potential, is this this mantra again, to help them take more payments from more customers more often, more easily. And as they migrate towards more of their customer engagement digitally, so digital payments are going to ease their journey better, make it easier for their customers, and it might even cost them less. So, you know, I'm just trying to help people understand what's possible, the art of the possible, and then guide them as to the simplest and easiest way to get there, right? Because businesses, you know, are a lot easier to manage when they're growing. They're bloody difficult to manage when they're shrinking and, and you're having to cut costs. So helping people understand where they can increase their revenues and reduce the costs and do that easily, that's the bit that I enjoy most. John, is there a sensitized example or case study of a project you've worked on relatively recently you might share with us? Yeah, yeah, there's a, a, um, a very good one. And it, it probably, probably comes with an organization who, probably in the mobile space, right, who were uh, you know, you sometimes get stuck in that big corporate rut of doing things in a particular way. Yeah. Um, but understanding, to help them understand the hundreds of thousands of pounds that could be saved by just readjusting their payment strategy, right? By opening up payments to their digital channels, by understanding how they might reduce their cost per transaction. And and that came from the bank, right? Because the bank knew the merchant. They knew the merchant wanted to be more profitable. So a good collaboration between the client and the bank. But they said, you need to talk to somebody who can show you what the possibilities are. So when you're dealing with thousands of, of call center seats, taking hundreds of thousands of customer communications a month, you can see how a small tweak 
to the processes and perhaps thinking outside the box a little bit, my job was just to open up the box, right? Just to open up the thinking, to understand the possibilities, the current and available possibilities to try and take more payments from more customers more often, more easily and at less cost. Yeah, and to have a solid handle, John, of what the payment solutions are in the marketplace, yeah. what's reliable, what use cases best suit, what uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and there are, there are, you know, there are complexities in the market. You know, salesmen do a fantastic job. Their their job is to persuade people that their solution is the best solution, that their solution will do everything. You know, you're going to be a happy person forever if you buy my product. Well, <laughs> you know, they do a great job. That's all I can say. <laughs> right. But when you lift the lid on a lot of what they do, there are there are some that are better than others, like everything, right? But I'm in the lucky position where over the decades in the contact center industry and the last decade in contact center payments and trying to help people there, you know, I lift the lid on a lot of technologies and I know the questions to ask. And when you ask them, you recognize that some people are better suited to some organizations rather than others. And it's getting that match right. Mm. You know, getting the match right for that organization to deliver their business plan, you know, with their budgets and, and almost opportunities or limitations. You know, you've got to help an organization work within the limits and helping them deliver their business plan that they've got written down. Somebody's got it somewhere, right? So you're just trying to align. This is how we're going to take payments from customers. and We're going to match that to how we're engaging with customers. It's not complicated. John, so for the benefit of anybody listening to this that um, has been impressed uh, by what you've had to say and is curious to talk to you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Just drop us an email, john, J-O-H-N, at compliance, and then a number three dot com. And if they want to give us a call or just drop us a text, 767 354 354 My thanks and appreciation to John Greenwood for helping to explain what just some of the key aspects of PCI DSS compliance are. Now, we touched on a lot of detail and key points for further examination in the podcast, and so, as is customary on our program, we like to make the follow-up research easy for you to find. So, if you check out the show notes, you'll find links to a few very useful items. Firstly, I've shared a link to the website of the PCI Security Standards Council, Secondly, I've shared a link to an article which goes into the aftermath and impact on the major UK retailer who had a card data breach that John referred to in the episode. This also touches on two massive cases involving a major hotelier and an airline. Now, the article is written by a respected law firm, and so you can read it with confidence in the accuracy and the integrity of the piece. Thirdly, I've linked to the exact documents library of the PCI Security Council website. And here you'll be able to download multiple documents to help you understand the requirements of PCI DSS. If you are listening to this episode and realizing that you need a trusted technology supplier who can help you to take card payments across all platforms, and you are especially looking for a supplier who can protect your call center operation from fraud-related chargebacks, but in a PCI-compliant manner, then our sponsor, Gala Technology, is a great place to start your search. Links to the main contacts with the team at Gala Technology are in the show notes. John Greenwood also kindly shared his contact details in that podcast if you want to speak to John, so I've added those into the show notes as well. Finally, it only remains for me to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Digital Payments Challenges and Solutions podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others who may find it interesting. Well, we're close to the end of another year with Christmas just a few days away. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our program and I extend my warmest wishes to you for a healthy and happy festive season with your loved ones and here's to a successful 2023. I've been your guest host, David Lilly. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to the Digital Payments Challenges and Solutions podcast. We exist to share best industry practices, to showcase software and product innovations, and to cast a light on the payment industry operators, small and large, who are leading the way towards better and safer payment experiences for both businesses and consumers. 
If you have enjoyed this episode of Digital Payments Challenges and Solutions, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review, as well as thinking about who you might share this episode with to benefit them. If you have a story to tell and would like to be a future guest on our podcast, please send us a short email explaining your background and the story you'd like to tell to media at galatechnology.co.uk.